0: Good morning, friends. I invite you now to take out your Bible or to take one that's in the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. If you do have a, a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 202. Last week we spent a little bit of time familiarizing ourselves with this book and asking the question, why why should we study this book? And we came up with four reasons. First of all, because all scripture is useful for us. We could pick any book, any chapter, any verse, and it would have good truth for our souls. Secondly, though, we said Judges is helpful because the day in which we live is eerily like the day in which the Judges was, was written, a time of religious pluralism, a time of spiritual decline thirdly we said it's good to study this book because this book contains some hard truth hard truth though that that's good for us to hear and then fourth and finally we said and perhaps most importantly it's important to study the book of judges because it along with all of scripture is about the gospel of jesus christ This morning we come to chapter 3, verse 7, and the first of the so-called major judges, Othniel. We actually don't know all that much about him, and as you see in our text this morning, we're not going to find out a whole lot about him. But we are introduced to a pattern or a cycle that will repeat with all the judges. What happens in Othniel's life will happen again and again and again and again as we work our way through this book. It's the pattern or the cycle of, of how God saves his people. It's helpful for us to have a handle on this cycle as we move into some of the stranger details that will confront us in the coming weeks. So let's look together, Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan-rishathaim king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Ophniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah indeed, Father you reign, you are the king of of all kings and God there is no better place for us to be than under your rule and under your reign. So come speak to us in these moments we pray. Continue to rule and reign in our hearts and in our minds. Enable us to hear the words that you speak from this section of your word to us we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please. So you know what it's like when you play a game for the first time a a new game perhaps a card game or a board game and many of you will have done this over christmas you sit around and and one person explains how the game works they explain what the rules are they explain what the point is either because they played it before or perhaps just because they have the instructions and eventually though someone says okay 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 let's let's just play the game Because we know that as we play that initial example, as we kind of have that dry run, we kind of catch on to how the game works and we figure it out as we go along. That's quite a good way of thinking about the text that we have this morning. It's an initial example, a dry run if you like, to show us how the book of Judges works. It introduces us to and exemplifies a pattern or a cycle that we're going to see repeat again and again and again as we come across these different judges. It's the cycle of how God saves his people. And it's helpful for us to understand it as it provides something of an anchor for us as we work our way through the details of this book. Five stages to this cycle. I'm going to work very simply through the text and making some applications as we go. Starting off then in verse 7, where we see the first stage in the cycle, which is what? Rebellion. The people rebel. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now we know, of course, that their rebellion is, in some senses, more understandable to us than we might like to admit. Why? Well, firstly, because of everything we spoke about last week. Remember the the powerful appeal of these fertility gods, of Baal and Asheroth. It was believed in that day that these gods had the power over your crops, power over your cattle, uh, power over even the children that you would have, that the health of your fields and your flock and your family depended upon these gods. And so you can imagine for the Israelites, this people who find themselves in this new strange land, living on that knife edge between, uh, you know, surviving or dying, that they would have done whatever they could do to ensure their survival. Perhaps they thought, well, you know, the God of Israel is indeed great, and he has indeed done great things for us in the past. But you know what? Our present needs are just different to that. We're not in need of some grand act of deliverance. We're in need of day-to-day necessities. And the people living around us seem to believe that their gods are able to deliver on these necessities. Perhaps not all that different to us when we rely on things other than God to make it through life. The second reason, though, and a reason I find pretty challenging as to why the rebellion is understandable, is notice how it begins Look there in verse 7. Disaster doesn't begin when they reject the Lord their God. Disaster begins when they simply forget the Lord their God. It's not some decisive step of rebellion. They just stop thinking about him as much. They just got a little complacent. They drifted and then they forgot. No big dramatic moment to slowly but surely they wandered off now many of us know what this is like and have experienced this in our own walk with the Lord not some major decision to rebel and reject the Lord just we got busy we got distracted little by little we've found that the Lord has had less role in our lives we stopped thinking about him as much we got complacent we drifted And so while you can remember a day when you were on fire for the Lord and you loved to spend time in his word and you loved to spend time in prayer and you were excited to serve in the church and be with other believers, when you look at your life now, that seems like a distant memory. You're you're living like you've forgotten. This natural process, this descent of spiritual decline, we, we sometimes compare it to, have you ever fallen asleep somewhere you weren't meant to fall asleep? If that's you this morning here in church, okay, wake up, wake up, right? The last time for me wasn't in, in church, it was actually in at the movie theater, okay, and it was about three weeks ago, okay, so don't think that I'm like, I remember a time, you yeah, know, yeah, recently. Um, I was in a movie theater, and you know what it's like, it's been a long day, it was really warm in there, uh, we were watching some movie we'd taken our kids to see, and you know sleep just kind of overwhelms you, and your eyes start to go and you kind of fight to keep them open. Right, and then you you know you you know you, you do the whole kind of like that thing, right? You know, sometimes I think you're giving me an amen. Actually, you're just waking up, right? You know, um, I start to do that, and here's the thing: without knowing it, you you fall asleep without realizing it. You know, you don't think I am now asleep. You realize it when your wife says, "James, you're asleep," and you wake up and you say, "Am I asleep?" And she says, "Well, you're snoring." Okay. <laughs> It comes upon us slowly, subtly. And I wonder if this describes you and I this morning. Are we spiritually sleepy? Spiritually asleep. Not because of some major act of rebellion, but because we've forgotten the Lord. This text is challenging because it makes very clear to us that you know the fact that the Israelites' rebellion was understandable does not mean in any way that it was acceptable. Look at verse 7. See how it describes it there? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Why so evil? Because God had entered into relationship with them. He had entered into a covenant relationship, a deep, binding relationship, like the, the covenant of, of marriage, and, and, and he promised that he would be their God, and that they would be his people, and that he would love them and care for them, and they promised in return that they would follow him and follow him faithfully. Even more gallingly, God had even promised to give them the very things that they were worried about here in the book of Judges. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, you'll have children. And the fruit of the ground, you'll have crops. And the fruit of your cattle, God had made promises to them and he had been nothing but faithful to them. Every single promise he had made, he had made good on and continued to fulfill in their very presence. And beyond that, in his kindness and in his generosity toward them. And what did they do in response? They just forget. They just forgot him. Our, our sin, our forgetfulness, our rebellion is described as evil. Because it's not just an offense against a fearful holy God. It's also a heartbreak to a loving, tender father. So, it's evil. That's the first stage in the cycle that we're going to see. here with Othniel and then repeat it again and again throughout this book. Rebellion. The second phase comes to us in verse 8. Look there and see. Following their rebellion, the people are oppressed by their enemies. A rebellion followed by oppression. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. So remember, one of the things we spoke about last week was that rebellion against the Lord. Always ends in disaster. Rebellion leads to disaster. There's an interesting wordplay in the text. You see it there in verse seven. We read that the Israelites serve the Baals and the Asheroth, these foreign gods, and as a result, they fall into disaster as they then serve Cushan-Rishathaim, this Mesopotamian king whose name means double wickedness. And Israel suffer under this guy the double wicked king, for eight long years. Notice two more things, though, about this oppression. First of all, note the cause of this oppression. This wasn't because of fate or circumstance. This wasn't some natural cause and effect. This wasn't karma coming back around to get them. What does verse 8 say? Verse 8 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what? So he sold them. The suppression is brought about by the smoking anger of a jealous God. Now, before you say, I'm not sure I like the sound of that God, think with me a little bit. One commentator says, such anger should not surprise us. Why? It is the price we pay for being loved. God's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. So understand that when the Bible talks about God as a jealous God, this is a good thing. Why? Because it's not some kind of petty jealousy where a spouse checks the, te- you know, the text messages of their, their, their spouse. The, the jealousy of God displays his feistiness for his people. The jealousy of God shows his care and his affection for his people. Hey, you know, imagine a situation where a wife was unfaithful to her husband. And we sat down with a husband and we say, you know, I'm sorry to hear about this. And he says, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. Right? It's just the way the cookie crumbles. You know? What are we going to conclude about that husband's affection for his wife? That is pretty shallow. Right? We would want the husband to be righteously jealous. We would want that husband to be righteously angry. Why? Because one commentator says jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. Isn't that a great line: jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. And that's why we get this oppression because of the anger of a jealous God revealing His feistiness for His people. But because of that cause, because of the cause of this oppression, we can also see, secondly, the purpose of this oppression. We've said that this is the cycle about Israel's salvation. And of course, oppression might not sound like salvation, and it's not. But if it forces the Israelites to lose their grip on Baal, then it might indeed be the beginning of their salvation. It speaks to us of God's steadfast love pursuing his children in their iniquity and not being above inflicting misery upon them if it will wake them up. So yes, oppression isn't salvation, but it is the prelude to salvation. Oppression as the prelude to salvation when spiritually sleepy, God acts to wake us up. That's what he's doing with the Israelites in this phase. Now, that he was doing this is proved by the third cycle, phase of, of this cycle where we see that the, his intentions worked. Look with me at verse 9. After rebellion came oppression, which is followed, verse 9, in third stage of our cycle with repentance. The people of Israel do what? They cried out to the Lord. It, it, it's short and it's tender. Having forgotten him, they now remember. Having wandered from him, they now return. It may have taken them eight years, but finally the scales fall from their eyes, and they don't try and solve the problem themselves, and they don't act like martyrs saying, well, we, you know, we deserve this. They just return to the one they know can help them like an unfaithful wife returning to that husband, like the prodigal son returning home. The honest assessment of yourself, recognizing the darkness of your shame and guilt, ought to drive you to the God you know will accept you. And they knew, they knew that he would receive them no matter how unfaithful they'd been. And here we see once again how there's grace in this book. Grace in this book because God does not stand over his children with a frown that says what have you done instead our God is the God who acts until we come to our senses and hear that whisper that invites us home and so you may have wondered far from him and you may have failed him quite spectacularly you may never have come to him in the first place and God says you can come to me today you can come to me today whatever the case because I am in the business of welcoming people who know that they need me the rebellion leads to oppression in order that they might come back to him in repentance fourth stage in our cycle then is found in verses 9 through 11 where we read that the people are saved rebellion oppression repentance salvation look at verse 9 when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Ophniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. God saves his people through his chosen leader. He saves his people through his chosen leader. We're introduced to Othniel, the first of the so-called major judges, and we actually don't know all that much about him, but there, there are three things that we know. But first of all, we know that he came from a famous family. He's related to Caleb. Caleb is that spy who brought back the good report, encouraging the Israelites that through God's strength, they would in fact be able to conquer the promised land. Secondly, we know that Othniel is is a great warrior. Back in chapter 1 of Judges, we read that Othniel conquered a city as, as part of their entrance into the promised land. Thirdly, we know that Othniel has like so many of these great biblical characters, just a sweet name. Okay? His name means the Lion of God or the power of God. Isn't that a great name? You know, just, it wouldn't have the same ring, would it? And the Lord raised up Brian and he led the people. You know, just, There's something about, yeah, he raised up the Lion of God and he led them into war. It's a great, great name. But really, the emphasis on the text isn't upon Othniel. That's why we know so little about him. The emphasis on the text is really on God's power. How so? Well, first look in verse 9. It is God who raises up this deliverer. Look again at verse 10. It is God who sets his spirit upon him. That's equipping him for the work that he's about to do. Verse 10, again, it is God. Isn't this great? God who gave Kush and rishathaim into Othniel's hand. The Lord gave this king into his hand by his own strength and by his own power. God saves his people, but he does so through his chosen leader. I think this highlights a couple of things for us. Very obviously, it highlights our, our complete dependence upon God. You know, verse 11 says that the land enjoyed rest. That's rest from war, rest from attack, rest from idolatry rest for 40 years. Why? Because the Lord saved his people. They didn't do it themselves. It was brought about by his might, by his power. And so surely we are dependent upon him if we want to see any progress in our own lives, or certainly as a church. Secondly, though, and challengingly, it not only highlights our dependence upon God, but it also highlights, does it not, the importance of leadership the importance of leadership, that our God tends to work through leaders. And it's very rare for a people to rise beyond the level of their leadership. That's true in our homes. It's true in our businesses. It's true in our communities. It's true in our nation. It's true in our churches. And isn't that a challenging thing to reflect upon? Are you stewarding the leadership that the Lord has given you? You know, ask that question: Who has he entrusted to your care, and are they are they better off for it? That's a challenge. That's an unmasking thing to work through. I, I do that myself as I think about my kids, as I think about my wife, as I think about this church. Lord God, please, would you make these people better off by the leadership you enable me to conduct by your grace? A challenging thing for us. To ask ourselves, God tends to work through leaders. How are you stewarding the leadership he's given you? Now it's at this point that we reach what we could call the problem with our cycle. Why? Because we've had you know, rebellion, we've had oppression, we've had repentance, we've had salvation. Uh, let's end there. Amen, benediction, all going home happy. Right? The problem is that's not where the cycle ends let's recap a little bit and uh, to recap a little bit I'm going I'm, I'm to use a visual aid so that we'll remember this a little better and for this visual aid I need five volunteers okay uh, the first of whom is called David Stevenson so i <laughs> um, volunteers before victims that's how this works thanks Mark Brooks have you come <laughs> come on three more be bold be brave David comes down here John Fix come on buddy Sarah Hobson have you come Diego you're the man. Stand right there. John, fix. Can you stand over here? Yeah. Let's stand on this step, Mark. Let's jump down to that step too. Okay. Let's stand here. Perfect. Perfect. Zero. Good job. You can stand and look at the congregation and feel a little awkward for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> So how does this cycle work? The cycle starts with David Stevenson, who is a known rebel, okay? <laughs> I don't want you to do your rebel face. I don't know if you have a rebel face, but... I'm know. sleeping. You sleep? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. okay. Rebellion leading to what? John Fix, oppression. Do you have an oppressed face? I don't know, work on it, yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you are the holy penitent one. You do repentance, okay? Diego, you win. <laughs> Salvation. The people rebel, they're oppressed. Their oppression is designed to lead them to repentance. And as a result, they're saved. So what goes wrong between saved and rebel? Between Diego and David? Mark, what have you done, okay? (laughs) That is going to bring this gum crashing to the ground? Well, what's the answer? Look at verse 11. You see it there? How does it end? Then Ophniel, son of Canaz, died. Verse 12, we didn't read it, but what happens? You see it there? Then the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What happens between saved and rebel? what happens between Diego and David is, is death. Do you have a death face? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> we spoke about the importance of leadership, but now here we see the limits of leadership. While, while Othniel is there, all goes well. But the peace doesn't last because Othniel doesn't last. We need a leader to secure our obedience, but the leaders keep dying. And we see this with Othniel, and we're going to see it with all the other judges as well. What's the point? What's the whisper? What's the echo? Do you see this? Are you tasting this? <laughs> we need a leader to secure our obedience, and we need a leader who doesn't die. And do you know what? In Jesus Christ, we have one even though he dies. This passage shows us, and the cycle in the Judges shows us again and again and again that human leadership is is so limited, no matter how spirit-empowered they are, that we need a leader to secure our obedience and one who will not die and enters Jesus, Revelation 1.18. You remember that great verse? I, he says, am the living one. Behold, I died, and now I am alive forever and ever. And so, what Jesus does is break into this cycle of the judges and do away with it. He says, "Death, down!" Well, oh, that was such a charismatic moment. I love that. That was good. Okay. <laughs> the cycle is broken, and what we now find is: John, slide this way. Sarah, step up a couple. You come with me. Not a cycle of rebellion, but a story that ends in salvation. Jesus came, and he did what all the judges did, but then he did what none of the judges could do, which was conquer death so that we might not be trapped in the circle of rebellion. That's the gospel of judges. Amen. Amen. Amen.. Amen. Let's pray Heavenly Father, we give you great praise, we give you great honor, we give you great glory for the way in which you deal with us, your people. We rebel, we are are so quick to forget, and you act, Lord, decisively in our lives to bring us to repentance that we might taste your great salvation. Father, we thank you for the judges and for the work they did in their own day. But most of all, we thank you for how they point us to the true and greater judge, Jesus Christ himself, who is alive forevermore, even though he died, securing our obedience and our salvation before your throne. How can these things be just your great grace toward us? It's in his matchless name we pray. Amen.